Okay, so last week um, we started talking about uh, the intermediate heaven and starting to kind of put out um, some distinctions between the heaven that you might experience if you were to uh, pass away today um, versus the heaven that you'll experience when Christ returns in the resurrection. Um, And to do that, we highlighted uh, a, a number of texts Um, last week, and as a result, there were a good bit of questions that came uh, out of it. I've summarized those into two questions. Um, Now, if you were here last week and you asked me a question and you feel like this doesn't uh, adequately summarize a question that you had, again, feel free to um, hit me up after, after the service tonight and we will... Uh, we'll make another stab at it next week. All right. Um, so today's study is going to be a complete study about what, what I'm calling guardrails in this um, in this um, overall study on heaven. So um, the questions that I'm going to kind of put forward and then attempt to to address. Um, or are around guardrails that we need to consider. So I'm going to make a couple of statements up front about the conclusion that I hope we come to when we get to the end of our discussion tonight. I want to kind of put those out there for you to be like considering. These are the guardrails, and then we're going to look at the text, and I'm going to show you how, uh, how we come to these things uh, from the text. So I tried to kind of write this out so that it would be clear. So I'm going to kind of just look here and read the guardrails, this kind of statement, guardrail statement regarding uh, our thoughts on this intermediate heaven. So here goes. Are you ready? I hope that you are. Please listen closely, especially if you had questions coming out of last week. So some of the things that I'm going to say are going to be reiterations of things that I said last week. Um, And then there's going to be some new things that I'm going to say um, in an attempt to address some of the questions that came out last week. Um, so for some of the questions, let me say this. I'm not, I'm not saying that you're wrong, but you ain't right. <laughs> That's about as nice as I can, as I can sum that up uh, for some of these. And I, I, hope to, I hope to, all kidding aside, I hope to kind of demonstrate that from the text tonight. Um, so here goes, guardrail statement. Jesus did not, and I'm, I'm, again, I'm very careful with the words that I'm using here. All of these are, are intentionally placed there. Um, so, so listen up. Jesus did not descend into hell to incur any further punishment. When Jesus said, it is finished, he had finished the full cup of God's wrath upon our sin. Also, Jesus did not go to hell for the purpose of extending an offer of salvation to anyone in hell who died before his incarnation. Finally, Abraham is seen as the premier example of faith. We'll look at Romans if we get there tonight uh, to see this. And it is because of his faith that God counted him as righteous. Therefore, there is no reason to believe that Old Testament saints were kept from the presence of God until after the resurrection of Christ. 
All right, so that was a long statement. I'm going to read it again. I'll try to read it a little bit, uh, a little bit faster uh, this time, and then we'll look at the two questions. So Jesus did not descend into hell to incur any further punishment. When Jesus said it is finished, he had finished the full cup of God's wrath upon our sin. Also, Jesus did not go to hell for the purpose of extending an offer of salvation to anyone in hell who died before his incarnation. Finally, Abraham is seen as the premier example of faith, and it was because of his faith that God counted him as righteous. Therefore, there is no reason to believe that Old Testament saints were kept from the presence of God until after the resurrection of Christ. Put simply, when they died, they went to heaven. Right? They found themselves in this intermediate heaven. So, uh, two questions that kind of summarize the questions that um, were brought to me after last week's um, Question number one, but didn't he preach to those in prison? Doesn't scripture say that he preached to those in prison? So that's question number one. And then the second question that we're going to look at is, didn't he lead a host of captives when he ascended? So what does that mean? Who are these captives? What does that trying to tell us? Um, To look at this, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, we're going to specifically pay attention to verses 17 through 22. I'm actually going to go and read farther up for the sake of context for this one. Um, and then we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 7 through 10. This is where we see the host of captives and gifts to men text. And then we're going to wrap up uh, tonight with Romans chapter 4, looking specifically at Abraham as Paul is laying out the gospel in Romans Abraham being that kind of premier example of the faith that that we uh, as believers have. Um, So, but didn't he preach to those in prison? If you're not there already, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, Start, if you don't start paying attention earlier, at least start paying attention when we get to verse 17. That's where kind of the arguments that I'm going to be making um, for how to properly interpret this text, uh, we'll, we're going to be starting from there. A couple of things um, before we get into to this tonight. Uh, there is an alternate way of viewing this, and if you were to happen to have a John MacArthur study Bible and you were to be looking at this, his commentary on this particular, you will see one of the alternate views um, for examining this. I'm not going to lay it out in full detail. I'll kind of give you a high-level um, picture of the way that John MacArthur um, interprets this, and then we're going to go through it verse by verse, and, and I'm going to hopefully convince you why he's um, not correct in this, also why he is in the, the minority view when it comes to this. Kind of two, um, two views tend to be um, put forward with this, the minority view. That is the view that's held by... Um, fewer of the people who love Jesus that have written about the Bible in their own studies um, tend to hold this view. So he has a a minority view on this. Um, His view is effectively that when Jesus died, there was a part of that window of time in the three days in which he went and preached specifically to 
um, demons who were imprisoned during the time of Noah. Okay, um, he's not preaching um, the gospel for some. He's not putting forward a, a, an idea of preaching to the lost during that time, um, but effectively proclaiming. Christ, in his view, is proclaiming victory over the demons there. Um, Again, that's a minority view, and I also um, don't think that that view um, does justice to uh, the text. Love you, MacArthur. If you were to happen to ever listen to (laughs) this podcast, you are better than me in almost all respects here. Uh, So I respectfully disagree with your opinion on this text. And I hope to convince, uh, (laughs) if you were to listen, you of this. Um, But since he's likely not listening to the podcast, he's not that one guy that listens to (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is a different John. <laughs> yeah. Um, then um, hopefully, hopefully I can do a good job of convincing you why this text does not uh, point uh, point to that. So um, I'm going to start reading back up in verse eight, um, just to kind of lay the groundwork a little bit here. Uh, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil for rev- or reviling for reviling, uh, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing for whoever desires to love life and see good days. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord against but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. I want to stop right here and kind of point you in this direction that um, he is here writing in regards to those who find themselves suffering for the sake of the gospel. I will go so far as to point you ahead in the text and say that this is quite likely because of the public nature of their professions. Right? Like, we live in a culture where um, you would be told, like, religion is a private thing, keep it private. Um, But what what we're going to see here is that even the act of baptism itself is a very public act of declaration of a belief in the truth of Christ's resurrection um, that oftentimes can come with the ridicule of those around us. So we're going there. That's the point of this text. The point of this text is not to speak specifically about what happened in that three-day window between Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. This text is to encourage those who find themselves today ridiculed for the belief that they hold in in what, if it were not true, would be ridiculous claims. If Christ is not raised, then this is foolishness that we proclaim. right? But in baptism, in following through publicly with the faith that we proclaim, we welcome 
ridicule, and much more so the hearers of of this of this writing here. But even if you should, verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. I ask, how are you going to be blessed? In what way are you going to be blessed? Um, and I'm going to point us in this text as well that in the same way that Noah and his family were blessed when they landed safely on the other side of God's wrath, you also, though you might find yourself in the midst of trials and turmoils and ridicule for the sake of your faith, will find yourself brought to God safely in the ark that is Christ and the resurrection. That is the point of this text that we're looking at here uh, tonight. So, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, verse 15, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. All right, so uh, always being prepared, expecting slandering, expecting this reviling, but we living with good behavior in Christ that, that they will be put to shame for it. Verse 17 now, For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Again, what's the context of the text, right? Our immediate context of where we're at here is this idea that it is better to suffer for doing good, if it's God's will that you suffer for doing good, than for doing evil. So what we're going to find in the next sections of the text here is I want us to identify those who are doing good and as a result find themselves suffering and those who are doing evil and as a result find themselves Suffering, And I want us to see here, I hope that we pay attention to this, um, that it's easy to get caught up in this difficult wording that we're going to run into. And again, it's extremely dangerous the way that we handle God's Word oftentimes. Because what we'll do is we'll attempt proof texting with texts that ought never to be taken on its own. Right? Like this text, using this text that we're going to run into here in the next few verses to try to make a case for Christ going into hell to preaching to preach to the lost who find themselves in hell because why? Because they didn't believe. Speaks more about us than it does about the truth of the gospel. speaks more about the way that we think about God's righteousness and God's works and God's ways of doing things than it does anything else. So, um, so let's, look at this, let's look at this text. So, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered. Once for our sins, the righteous... For the unrighteous, that he might bring us 
to God. So the purpose of this text here, demonstrating to those who find themselves suffering for doing good, that Christ Himself suffered in doing good, and by doing good brings us to God. That is, the, that is the act that he's doing in this work right here. That is this good thing that he's doing. And now, how did this occur? Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So let's go back to 18, and let's just kind of read up through the end of verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. How did he do that? By being put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the Spirit. Now, verse 19 is where we enter into this difficult piece, but I want us to read on through and then come back to 19. I want us to read on through so that we can see this chaining of who Christ is, what He's done, and, and I want to make the case that what He's doing here is, is demonstrating to us that the ark itself is a type pointing to Christ. Okay, what do I mean by type? I mean that God shaped history to proclaim Christ in the lives of those living in history. That, in the, that what he's going to demonstrate here is that in the same way that the ark saved Noah and his family from the wrath of God and brought them safely to the other side of that wrathful outpouring, that we find ourselves in faith in Christ who brings us. Again, this idea that He might bring us to God. Not that God's wrath never came, but that it was finished perfectly and completely in Christ on the cross. Are y'all with me so far? So now the difficult text in which... He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, right? And this is why I wanted us to come all the way down here to this, is, is this idea that what he's just put forward is that baptism corresponds to this. He's saying here, baptism is a type that demonstrates this. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. So here we find this difficult text, which some would look at, and listen, I'm going to be honest with you. This is not an e. This is like the fact that Peter would say that Paul has a couple of places that are difficult to read, and then he would write like this. It's like, come on, bro, read the room. <laughs> this, this may be one of the places that is the most difficult to consider. But I think that by understanding that what he, the point he's trying to get across is to demonstrate that the ark itself is a type that points to Christ. You, 
I could see him saying to those who find themselves baptized, and then as a result of that public profession, find themselves undergoing ridicule for it, I could see him sitting down with them and, and having a conversation that's like something like this. How do you imagine Noah felt when for years he was building this boat <laughs> with no demonstrated need for it? And what are you building this boat for, man? Why? Why? All this ridicule, all this reviling, all this like slanderous words coming his way. No doubt. And yet, what does he demonstrate every time that he goes back to that yet-to-be-completed ship and starts working on it? What is he demonstrating? He's demonstrating faith in the one who told him that it would come a pretty serious rain. Right? He's demonstrating faith year after year, decade after decade, in his life. Okay, now here's what I would go so far as to say is that I believe that this text demonstrates two, there's two potential ways that um, the Spirit proclaimed. One is clearly true, the other is likely true, and we can get that from this text. Um, the one that's clearly true is that in every moment that Noah went faithfully building this boat year after year, decade after decade, he was proclaiming in his actions faith in the one that told him what was to come. In spite of the ridicule, in spite of the reviling, in spite of whatever words. Now, I think that this text also indicates that in the same way that when you yourselves find yourselves in your workplaces, in your schools, out in the communities, and people are like, hey, you're a believer, right? Well, what about this? Do you find yourself standing alone as the ridicule comes your way? Hmm? Do you? No. Who's with you? Jesus. By way of the Holy Spirit. Proclaiming in the stance that you take and in the words that you proclaim. So I think also this demonstrates a reality that Noah was here, not just building and then they're like asking what he's doing and he's like secretive about it, but a proclamation of a coming day of wrath that was proclaimed in the Spirit by way of Jesus working in the Spirit through Noah to those who now at the time of his writing, find themselves in prison because they were disobedient. Right? So let's, let's, let's look at that. So this Jesus who brings us to God, who was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, the same Jesus in which He went. So it was in this type of Spirit, in this type of proclamation that he went and proclaimed to the spirits. Okay, they're spirits now. They were not simply spirits then. They're in prison now. They were not in prison then. This is looking back, building up this type of Christ, demonstrating something that's similar in the way that we live, in the way that our lives being hidden away in the ark, proclaim 
This truth about him that there is coming a day of wrath. I find myself hidden away in the ark of Christ. Safe from that day of wrath. That day of wrath is not yet here for you. But it is coming. And there will be a day when the doors close. And there will be a day when your spirit finds itself as these in prison. So in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits imprisoned. He proclaimed to them while they were walking and talking. Now, they're in prison. Why? Verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey. Was God not patient with them? Should He not have given them more time? Should He not have given them another opportunity? And that's why oftentimes we'll look at this text and when we think about what happened in the flood, um, we'll look at a text like this and we'll want Him to have given them enough opportunity as though He was not patient enough with them. But while the ark was being prepared, in which, or, or excuse me, formerly they did, they did not obey, verse 20, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. God was very patient with these spirits who were now in prison. He was patient while they saw Noah through faith constructing this ark in which he and his family would be saved from the coming wrath of God. No doubt they heard him proclaim this coming day verbally to them, but they did not obey. And Noah did not build this ark in a day, years, decades, proclaiming with every day of work that he put into this boat that you have not seen it and you think that it's foolish, but a day of wrath is coming in which this will be the only way of rescue. God was patient with these spirits each and every day step of the way while the ark was being prepared in which a few that is eight persons were brought safely through the water so this ark and i want you do this in um, your own time Um, go back and look at the book of genesis and i want you to look how quickly the story progresses to the ark we have creation we have cain and abel We progress really rapidly through a number of generations to get to Noah and then the ark. Like that's it's in the it's in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. We find humanity come humanity get to a point to where God is like, I will destroy them for their sinfulness. In which it then declares or excuse me, Noah to be a righteous man. How is anyone in Scripture ever declared righteous. How does it happen? By faith alone is anyone anywhere in Scripture proclaimed righteous. How was Noah righteous? Clearly Noah was righteous because he had faith. Faith enough to go decades after decades constructing this boat to save him and his family. Noah was saved by faith. And when Noah laid his head down in the Old Testament before Christ came, he was found in Christ. 
His very life proclaims the reality of Christ for us. As many that we find in the Old Testament will do. So, here, baptism, which corresponds to this. Again, like, and I wrote this down um, in my notes. I'm going to go and and, um, specifically read uh, read this section from this. Because... um, I don't want you to get the idea that that baptism here is merely a like him pointing towards a, an an outward act, right? Like that it's simply water baptism that he's speaking of here. He's speaking of he's using baptism as a term of like um, in the same way that it took Noah years and years and years to construct the boat, that it took Noah walking into the boat and the door being closed behind him for him to be saved, right? Like it took faith from beginning to end to get there. So this is what I would say in regards to this text and how we should understand it. As the construction of the ark was a public declaration of the faith of Noah, so also baptism is an outward declaration of an inward reality. How do we know that Moses had, or excuse me, that Noah had faith? How do we know? You respond, he built the ark. That's a demonstration, right? So in the same way, in the same way, so also also baptism is an outward declaration of an inward reality. The public nature of faith often results in ridicule from those who are perishing. We are not proclaiming in baptism some outward washing and removal of dirt. We are proclaiming the resurrection of Christ. We are making ridiculous claims when we stand to be baptized. Ridiculous claims. That God came, died, and was raised. And we find ourselves in Him. Now, alright, so that was part one. That was, we're about 30 minutes in now. It is toasty in here. I feel like we hit the heat. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. Maybe it's just the difficulty of the text, right? Um, so now, let's look at the next passage of text here. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4. Starting in verse 7 and going through verse 10. So here we're going to be addressing this second question here. Uh, So the first question, but didn't he preach to those in prison? Yes, he did by Noah building the ark and by Noah using his words, proclaiming the coming day of destruction in the day of Noah to the people alive in the day of Noah. So yes, he preached to them, um, but not in that three-day window of time. Um, in which he was um, awaiting the resurrection. All right, so now we're answering this second question. Didn't he lead a host of captives? So let's look at that text. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 is where I'm going to start. But grace was given to each one of us according to... Hold on, I've... I've got to take my jacket off because it's legit hot in here. And I'm going to die. (laughs) Maybe. But I can smell the heat. Someone cut the heat on. 
Speaking of hell, no. <laughs> We're not going to be able to pay any attention from this point out. <laughs> Get me behind me, Satan. No. <laughs> Sometimes it's just the air conditioner. That one was on. <laughs> that would explain there being a fire somewhere in the sanctuary would explain why it's so hot in here now uh, all right so i'm gonna I'm going to try to salvage this um or should we exit the building? What do y'all think <laughs> perhaps perhaps we exit the building. This is a good stopping point. I can finish this next week. <laughs>